0: Thank you. <laughs> thank you to, uh, thank you to um, Gretchen and Jay and the music. Isn't that a great song to end out there on? Yeah. At the cross I bow my knee. Yeah, it's just, I think about that because yeah, just, we're, we're going to talk about this over the next, you know, hour and a half or so. I'm not sure how long this is going to run today, so buckle up. Been gone for a couple weeks. I got some time to make up, right? No, it won't be anything over an hour and 15, I promise. Um, As we jump in today, I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to apologize off the top because this might be a hard question. But whether you're here in the room, whether you're watching online, I want to ask you this question. Think back to a time when you were at a dark point, having a dark day, and just think about this. If you need to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. And I want to apologize. I'm not trying to dredge up any traumatic memories here okay i'm not trying to dredge up any any moments i just want you to think about this when you have had a dark day or a dark time or a dark period think about that for just a second here now here's the quick follow-up question to this because i don't want to leave you hanging in there what got you through that what got you through that? Now, i know jesus is the, the answer at, at sunday school right what's the answer jesus it's always the answer But just think about that, because even in those moments, sometimes it doesn't always feel like Jesus is right there helping us through it. He is, but we may not always feel that. But maybe you've had a time, maybe you've had a day that just felt hopeless. It just felt dark, and there was no no escape. Now, I I know what you're probably thinking, Kurt, this is Palm Sunday, dude. Like, what are we talking about darkness here? We're supposed to be waving branches and shouting Hosanna, because that's what day happened with, with Jesus when he rolled into town on a donkey on on that Sunday. And yeah, you're right. We're jumping ahead a few days in the week. (laughs) We're moving from Sunday to late Thursday night and Friday morning, because over the past few weeks, we have been in this series called 24 Hours in John, and what we've been doing in this series is looking at the last day Jesus spent here on earth, and we started on Thursday night. Jesus is crucified on Friday, we started on Thursday night, back in John chapter 13, looking at that Last Supper, looking at the, uh, the time Jesus washed the feet of his disciples to settle an argument. Uh, the next couple of weeks after that, Matt uh, led us through John 14 and 15, talking about Jesus being the way and the truth and the life, and that he is our only path. One of the last lessons Jesus taught his disciples. And then he talked about John 15 and Jesus being the true vine, and how we can only be fruitful and, 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 and thrive if we abide in him. Uh, Word to abide in every Bible I own. I've got it circled or highlighted every time because it appears like 12 times in a couple verses. Big theme. Last week, Ken talked about the prayer Jesus gave to, to God that is such a powerful prayer. It's a prayer, I, I'll be honest, I have a hard time reading John 17. One of my professors at Bible college used to say, I shouldn't be allowed to read that prayer. Because it's God talking to God. It's God in the flesh talking to God, <clears throat> the Father. And as we get into John 18 today, we're going to start in Gethsemane. Now, John chapter 18 doesn't tell us specifically that Jesus is in Gethsemane. It just says he's in a garden. The other gospel writers tell us exactly where he's at. The garden of Gethsemane was just a stone's throw, maybe a mile away from the hub in Jerusalem, from the temple, from the spot where Jesus was going to be crucified. It's across this little shallow valley called the Kidron Valley. And so it's a very quick and easy access point to get over to. It's, it's a secluded garden, it's an olive grove, and people can go there to, to escape the city. Even still, in the midst of, of a bigger city of Jerusalem to this day, there's, there's walled-off, secluded areas that you can go into and, and pray and almost feel like you're, you're, you're separated from everything. But as Jesus is praying, what, what John does is he jumps straight into the action. He doesn't talk about the prayer, the other gospel writers do. He jumps straight into the action with Judas showing up with a legion of Jewish leaders and military to arrest Jesus. And what's going to ensue over the next two chapters is we're going to see Jesus put on mock trial after mock trial. Five different trials John talks about with five different leaders or bodies of authority. And over the course of this night, Jesus is going to be put up here and there's going to be no actual evidence presented. No formal charges given, let alone a conviction. Jesus isn't allowed to cross-examine any of the false witnesses. He's forced to self-incriminate. And at the end of all of this, by noon the next day, he's dead hanging on a cross. That's what we're going to read about in these next two chapters. But before we do this, we're going to jump back just a little bit in your Bibles. If you've got a Bible, go all the way back to what we call the... the, the, the or, uh, <laughs> I just blanked out here. Go back to Deuteronomy 21. Quit trying to be creative, Kurt, and just talk. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them here on the screens for you. We've got the verses up here. We've got, uh, we've got a device you can go there. Because what we're going to see is something that, that uh, I'll be honest, if, if you've read the Bible through, there's certain chunks, let's just be honest, certain chunks of the Bible we read through we just kind of read to read. Let, let's be honest. We're in church. You don't have to lie about it. None of you really look forward to Leviticus and Deuteronomy or Numbers. They're not, fun. Terry might. None of the rest of us do. Terry loves that part. <laughs> so this is a verse that i heard. This past week, I was, I was driving, and I, I heard a sermon on a totally different topic, and they touched on this, and I was just like, holy cow, this verse. Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. <clears throat> says this, If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and his mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, His father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. Now, most of you know me enough to know that I've got three kids. I've got two daughters, an eight and a half and a six year old, and I've got a two and a half year old son. And my kids by and large are, are pretty good kids, but if you've been around Titus very long or you follow my Facebook post, you know it's um, he's challenging at times. <laughs> he is a he is his own little person at two and a half years old. He he marches to his own beat. I mean he at daycare that one time they said, you know, Titus doesn't really like to play with the other kids. I said, Well, he doesn't play with us at home either. So I mean he just kind of does his own thing. He ignores us and anybody that he's around and, and he just I won't say he's rebellious. He's definitely stubborn. (laughs) He's got that trait from probably both parents. But Titus is, you know, this just fun little bundle. Now, I don't know what the future's going to hold for him. But I do know for some of you all, you could sit here and say, well, you know, I think I do have a rebellious and stubborn son. I have a child who's rejected me and run away. I have a child who's rejected everything I've taught them. They've rejected the God that I taught them. And, and, And They're into all sorts of things I don't approve of. Maybe I have a child who's sitting in jail right now because of all the things that they've done. Maybe that's you. Again, I don't know what the future holds for my kids. I don't know what path they'll take. I know I can set them up right now to take a certain path, but it's ultimately going to be up to them to choose that path. But here's what I do know, that I can sit here today in March of 2021 and say I can never envision a point in my life, ever, where I'll be willing to hand my son over to be killed for anything that he's done. I believe that he may have to pay for uh, you know, the consequences of, of, of his actions, but I can't personally hand him over for that. I'm not capable of that. And I would dare say I'm not the only one in this room that's incapable of that. I don't know that any of us are. I don't think God wired us that way. And in fact, this is a Jewish law, but in all of the recorded Jewish history, There's not a single instance of anyone turning their child over to be killed in this instance. And so you may say this, well, then why would God give us a law that he knew we could not follow? He gave us a law that he knew we would break every single time. Why? Because God knew that he would follow it. Because God knew that he could, even though his son was far from rebellious even though his son wasn't a drunkard or a glutton, that his son Jesus wasn't disobedient, and he certainly listened to his father. And yet his father turned him over to be killed by the men of the town. This passage is clear back towards the beginning of the Bible, and yet in those three verses are the gospel message. In those three verses are what Jesus did for us. And it's not like God just wrote that verse and then years later decided to act on it. No, he crafted it in such a way that only God could do. That he's taking care of everything. Jesus, us, everything. Because if you move on in Deuteronomy 21 and you look at the very next verse, here's what it says. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. Now, if you know the story of the crucifixion, what happens after Jesus dies? They take his body down before sundown. That was unusual. That didn't happen. And I'll get to that here in a minute, why that's the case. But you know what's fascinating about these verses? Deuteronomy was written around the early 1400s B.C., Crucifixion wasn't created for another 900 years. The mid-500s B.C., early to mid-500s, is when historians believe the first crucifixions came about. And they were invented by the likes of the, the Persians and the Carthaginians and the Macedonians. They used the crucifixions extensively. But it wasn't until the time of the New Testament that the Romans came along and the Romans perfected it. The Romans... They didn't just use the crucifixion, they didn't just use a cross for the common, ordinary capital offender, somebody who killed somebody else. That wasn't, they stoned them to death. No, the cross was used for the worst of the worst. The cross was used to make an example of someone, because they wanted everybody to see what happened when you crossed Rome. Often it was reserved for revolutionaries. People that were a threat to the crown. Traitors. It was an extremely public, an extremely graphic, an extremely slow form of execution. They didn't want you to die within an hour, they wanted you to hang there for as long as possible. It was brutal. It was brutal. It was meant to inflict as much pain as possible. In fact, it was meant to inflict so much pain that there wasn't a word to describe the amount of pain they went through, so they invented a new one. We translate it in our language as excruciating. Out of the cross. The crucifixion was done by nailing somebody to this cross. Spikes that were often seven to nine inches long were driven through the palms or through the wrists either one. The palms, if they wanted them to suffer more, the wrists, if they wanted them to be in more pain. And they'd be driven through the feet wrapped around the side of the cross, right through the top of the foot, through nerves. And and the body would hang there, and just hang, sometimes for days on end. And I I think a lot of us assume that eventually the person would suffocate, maybe some of them would, but a lot of historians have discovered that most people died on the cross, not just through through asphyxiation. But they died through shock because their body eventually just quit working. It couldn't handle the stress and the strain. Some of them, in the case of Jesus, some of them, their hearts would rip in two because they just couldn't handle it. That was was a crucifixion. It was an example. And not only was this done, but this was done in an extremely public manner. The cross was often only a foot or two off the ground on a very public road. Imagine down on 6th Street where everybody can see. Because again, they want to make an example. This is what happens when you cross Rome. It wasn't done in a quiet room. with only family and friends watching. It wasn't done in a sterile manner. They wanted you to not only suffer, they wanted you to be humiliated in the process. And so often people would hang on a cross for at least two or three days before they finally died. Sometimes... Some of the longest recorded instances they hung on the cross for over a week before they died. And then often the bodies were just left to rot and fall apart. So they could say, this is what happens when you cross Rome. Maximum pain, but maximum shame and humiliation. That's what Jesus did for us. You think about this, this is Jesus. Jesus the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord of all creation. Jesus was there when the world was created. Jesus was there through all of it. He spoke the world into existence and here he is hanging on a cross for us, for all of us. He's the fulfillment of everything the Jewish people had been hoping for for centuries. And he's being tried for crimes that he didn't commit. This is, the sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter for people that were going to reject him, for people that were going to hate him, people that were going to leave him. And all this took place because we, folks, we aren't capable of reconciling ourselves to God. Because we rejected him and we can't restore that. Jesus went to the cross to receive what I deserved, what you deserved. And yet, at the same time, I think far too often we, we, we look at those events, especially this time of the year, and we replay them over and over, and I think we oversimplify them just a little bit. We think about Jesus, oh, he died on the cross for us, and then he rose again. That, thank you, Jesus. And, and I'm not, I don't mean to diminish that. that, that's good. But sometimes we need to step back and, and look at this a little bit heavier, a little bit deeper. So what I want to do over the next few minutes, because I know, again, these are a couple of big chapters and there's a lot going on, is I just want to dive bomb and make three observations from this passage. Because I want us to to, to make sure we're aware of these. I think we're very capable of being guilty of the same things some of these people were in, in this passage. Here's the first observation that we can make. Often we diminish who Jesus is when we want to justify how we can betray him. We'll diminish who Jesus is when we want to justify how we betray him. Okay, Go back to John 18. We're, we're going to jump back into this passage here. John 18, again, it starts with him in the garden and Judas shows up with the people and in chapter 18 verse 4 it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, I always love that, went out and he asked them, who is it you want? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Again, keep in mind, these guys are with Judas. Yes, he's betrayed Jesus. Jesus has called him out on it already, earlier in the night. This is still Thursday night. This is shortly after their, their last supper, and he's washed their feet. Those are those last three weeks of sermons, those conversations that Jesus had took place on the way to the garden. The prayer took place as soon as he got there. Or John says, just outside the garden even. But it's Judas. And yes, he's the betrayer, but he's also a disciple. He's been there this whole time. He has seen all the stuff Jesus has done. He's seen people healed. He's seen people raised from the dead. He's seen him calm a storm, speak things into existence. And they walk up, and despite all of these, these titles that Judas would have known Jesus to have, Lord, God, Savior, Messiah, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, on the one hand, it's a true statement, Okay? That's an apt description, because they didn't have last names. You know, when I came here, it, had to, it took me a while to figure out which Ed was which, okay? But fortunately, there's last names. I didn't have to learn descriptions to go along with them, okay? They did that here, and Jesus was a common name. So that's why we see, I mean, just good grief. Think about here in a few minutes, I'm going to mention like five Marys in one verse. You know, that's... <laughs> It's hard to keep up. That's why we tag Mary Magdalene. That's because she was from Magdala. That's where she's from, right? That's not her last name, okay? So they tag a a town name to describe where somebody is from, Jesus of Nazareth. But at the same time, you got to think about the context here. Nazareth is in Galilee. Nazareth is kind of a backwater town because Galilee is a backwater area, okay? Be like if I made fun of someone for being from Arkansas, okay? Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> no offense. Louisiana is that better? Louisiana, biggest state. Mississippi. Well, I'm stop, stop. I'm gonna get in trouble. But imagine if somebody described you and they tagged something to go along with your name that was a little bit of a, of an insult to make sure people know uh, he's not high class, he's not an important person. This is Joe of Hicktown, USA. Okay. That's similar to what we'd be dealing with here. They wanted to make sure people know, well, this is just now, I mean, think back earlier, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Something was told to Jesus earlier in his ministry. And I think about this because I think we do this to Jesus sometimes too. Now maybe we don't change his name, maybe we don't change his description, but we diminish who he is in our lives so that we can justify our actions that might betray him. Let me go, what, what, what do you mean, Kurt? Well, think about it this way: How many times has Jesus just been someone on your list to reach out and consult? He's just someone that's there for advice, like a mentor, or a confidant, or a buddy. Hey, hey, Jesus, I'm just curious. What do you think I should do in this situation? I mean, I talked to my talked to my dad already, and talked to my brother, and talked to my, my my friend down the road, and a couple of guys I work with, and uh, talked to some people from church. Now I'm talking to you. What do you think I should do? Jesus isn't a buddy or a confidant. He is the Lord of all creation. Now, yes, he is your friend, and he wants to be your friend, but he wants to be your Lord. When we submit to him, like when when you confess him as Lord, that's when you become a Christian, become a follower. When you confess him as the Lord of your life, you submit everything you are to him. He's not just another name on your checklist. No, he is your God, And we can't take that away from him. Because the moment we do, it's suddenly much easier to justify doing whatever we want and saying, well, Jesus told me this, but these other five people told me that. And suddenly his voice carries a little less weight in our ears. You need to remember this. If you are a Christian today, if you call yourself a believer and a follower, if you have submitted to him, if you've been baptized to him, baptized in him, You are a new creation, and He's not just another one of your top friends on Facebook. Look what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you live completely centered on Jesus, folks, part of that isn't part of the Bible, just so you know. Part of that's my next point that I copied and pasted with the Bible verse, so... I just want to be really clear about that. The Bible verse starts at me in the period, or stops at me in the period. The rest isn't part of the Bible or me trying to make it part of the Bible. That's just a copy and pasting error. This is what happens sometimes in the life of a pastor. I <laughs> just want to be clear. There's my point, though, I'm getting ready to say. Folks, if you live your life completely centered on Jesus, if you live your life where he is the Lord of your life, it's going to be much, much harder to, to diminish him. It's going to be much more difficult because you won't be able to fully separate your identity from Him because your identity will be wrapped in Him and defined by Him. So don't diminish Him. He's Lord. Here's my second observation. We've all betrayed and denied Jesus. And I think we've betrayed Him worse than Judas and denied Him more often than Peter. I think it's easy for us to look at those two guys, and, and called Judas a villain, and Peter just the bumbling sidekick. <laughs> and we're not much different. John eighteen verse fifteen. Here's the story of Peter. It says Simon Peter and another disciple, that's John. He just never gives himself his own name here. We're following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. Just a little side note, it's always fun to watch John take jabs at Peter. Like, here next week we'll talk about the resurrection and John makes sure to point out he beat Peter to the tomb, okay? It's always fun to hear that. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. "'You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you?' she asked Peter." He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them warming himself. Jump to verse 25. Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, Aren't you one of the disciples uh, too, aren't you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, in case you don't remember the story here, you go back to the first week of this series, John 13. And I hit on the foot washing. But that that chapter ends with Jesus saying, one of you all has betrayed me. And he knows who it is, but he kind of lets him hang a little bit. And Peter's very defiant. I could never betray you. Never, ever, ever, ever. In fact, I'll die with you. And Jesus is like, yeah, tonight you're gonna deny knowing me three times, even before the rooster crows. Jesus calls him on it, because Jesus knows this. Now, again, a moment ago when I said, We have betrayed Jesus worse than Judas and denied him more than Peter, some of you might have stiffened up and like, oh, maybe you have. Speak for yourself, Kurt. Maybe you got a bit defensive. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you have never specifically said, I don't know that man. I'm not with him. I'm not from Galilee. First off, you couldn't deny it. They had an accent. Okay, It's like being from the south and denying being from the south. It's the accent. You can't. Okay, You can identify where some people come from. right? Same thing happened there. He couldn't deny where he was from, even though he tried to. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you haven't said, I don't know who Jesus is. But maybe there's been plenty of opportunities for you to tell somebody, I know who Jesus is, and you haven't done that. I'm there. I'm guilty of that with you. Maybe you've had the door open for you to share Jesus with somebody, and you've just sat on it. Maybe you've had the opportunity to display Jesus to people, to demonstrate Jesus to people, and you've blended in with the crowd instead. Maybe you've caved to peer pressure. I'm not trying to pick on you. It's easy to do. It's easy to do especially in a culture that's turning further and faster away from Jesus than any of us have ever experienced. And I know this too. Judas, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I betrayed him for a lot less than that. I'm guessing you probably have too. I, I think about how many times I've, I've betrayed Jesus just to have an evening away from stress Evening away from worries. Maybe to have time to myself. Ignored the stuff that I should be doing. Man, we we do this. We sell Jesus out for what feels good. We sell Jesus out for what looks good. Maybe it's, again, so that we don't look bad in the eyes of a culture and a society that's running away from Jesus. I don't know. I just know my heart, there's been times I've done both of these. And it's so easy for us to do. Folks, we need to be careful with this. I mean, we need to be careful just pointing the finger at those two men until we're willing to point it at ourselves too. Here's my third observation. That Jesus' death on the cross did far more than just forgive our sins. In John 19, we start reading about the crucifixion. And, and I'm just going to read this passage to you. I don't have it on the screens. If, if you got a Bible and you want to follow along, you can. But otherwise, I just just follow along and listen to this. Because in John 19, we see Pilate try and try and try. And finally, it says, you guys just do whatever. Because you've made your minds up. I'm not going to be able to, to help you out here. So starting in verse 16 of John 19, it says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And carrying his own cross, he went out to the place The skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign where Jesus was crucified near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man. Uh, write that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, and dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with this uh, undergarment remaining, the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed so that scripture could be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus went to the cross, and he endured more than I can imagine. I got to be in Israel a few years ago. I got to see remnants where people were flogged and beaten. There's still blood stain on rocks from 2,000 years ago. From where they ripped people apart. You know, we read about flogging and John just kind of mentions it in passing. We read about flogging and think, well they just did that before they crucified somebody. No. 60% of the people who were flogged died. Like that was a form of execution in and of itself. And they did that to Jesus. And then they put him on a cross and they nailed him up there. And he died. He was beaten. He was punched in the face. The Bible says he was beyond recognition. You couldn't even tell he was a man anymore. For us. And he hung on that cross on a public road in the middle of Jerusalem where everybody could see him. And you don't have to go back very far in John to see him with thousands and thousands and thousands of followers. And here he has one disciple left and his mother and a couple of other ladies, and that's it. And he did that for you and for me. Romans chapter 3 tells us that Jesus went to the cross and he died. And and Paul specifically uses three words. He says that he he died so we could be justified, redeemed, and atoned for. And those are specific terms for specific reasons. Justification means that we are set free from slavery. Let go, or I'm sorry, set free from the legal bonds of our, of our sin. We're, we're made whole, redeemed as we're set free from the slavery of our sin. And to be atoned for means we're set free from the wrath of God. God will not hold our sin against us anymore. But it's more than just that because it goes even a step further, I think. Jesus took that humiliation and all the shame that came with it so that we wouldn't have to carry the guilt and the shame of our sin any longer. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this. He says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you don't know much about Romans, he spends the first seven chapters letting you know how much of a miserable, rotten sinner you are. And then the first thing he says in chapter 8 is, therefore, there's now no condemnation. You're set free because of what Jesus did for you. I think about this. Because what this verse means is it does not matter what you have done in your life. It doesn't matter what baggage you have. It doesn't matter what you've brought into this room with you today. Jesus went to the cross to forgive it so that you could let it go because he's letting it go. God's letting it go to bring you back to the Father. He's offering you mercy and grace and and, and maybe you're listening to, maybe you're in this room today, maybe you're online today, listening to this going, yeah, but you don't know what I've done, Kurt. You you say that and that's all good and stuff, but but you don't know what I've done. I've hurt people. I've 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 hurt God. I've gossiped. I've I've, I've slandered. I've I've said things that have been damaging to people. I've taken my anger out on others. You know who wrote these words? A man who hurt people. Who spit on God. Who killed people like you and me for believing in Jesus. That's the man who wrote those words. You know why? Because God got a hold of him. Because Jesus met Paul on a road one day and said, hey, forget all this junk that's in your life, follow me instead. And Paul did. And because Jesus reached out to a man who had treated him like garbage and turned his life around, we have the majority of our New Testament that tells us how to believe in Jesus and what it's all about and how our churches should function and run. We have the most influential person that's walked this earth outside of Jesus himself because God wasn't willing to give up on somebody who had treated him poorly. There is no condemnation. None. And I think about this because so many of you were human and it's hard for you because you know what people have done to you. And you know how hard it is to forgive and let go of things. I get it. I'm there. I, I, I can forgive. I don't forget. And A lot of you are probably, probably the same way. I get it. It's hard. And, and if you're struggling with sin and shame today, it's because deep down you believe God couldn't possibly forgive me. He couldn't forgive a wretch like me. And you forget the most basic things in the Bible. Like John 3, 16. Or maybe you don't forget it, but you just think, well, that applies to everybody else. You don't know what I've done. Folks, let me, let me be very honest with you here. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of your sin. He died to let you let go of this, the, the guilt and the shame of your sin too. So that you wouldn't beat yourself up with it. Folks, I, I want to make this clear. There is nothing... Nothing that you have done in your life, at any point in your life, it is so bad, the blood of Jesus can't cover it. Nothing. And I know it's easy to think that, but I just want to remind you of that. Nothing you have done is beyond His grace and His blood. But I want to say something to the rest of you. Maybe you're going, well, you know, I know that, and I, I know that I don't struggle with sin with guilt and shame anymore. Maybe that's you. Can I, can I give you guys something too here? I want to remind you all, it's not our place to be adding to the sin or the guilt and the shame of other people's sin. The church, sometimes we've, we've done that. Sometimes we do that. We're good at reminding people what they've done and where they've come from. Our job is to point them to the one who has set them free from all of that. That's our job. Jesus went to the cross to give us mercy and grace. Heard this described a long time ago, and, and I, I love this. Mercy, mercy is receiving what we, or mercy is not receiving what we truly deserve. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. We're given mercy because we deserve death, and he gave us life. We have grace because he gave us life, and we deserve death. I deserve to be on that cross, not Jesus. I deserve to be the one hanging there for people to see my sin and my shame. And he did it for me. Him who knew no sin became sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God. And that's the point of the cross, folks. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, this was a symbol of pain and suffering. Nobody would dare put this on the wall of their home, let alone wear it on a pendant around their neck or maybe get it tattooed to their body. And 2,000 years later, we do. This was a symbol of pain and hate and torture and shame and humiliation. And now for us, this is a symbol of hope and love. If that's the band to come up, they're going to lead us in a declaration. They're going to lead us in a declaration of what the cross means to us. And at at any point during this song, I want to extend an invitation to you. Our elders are going to be kind of spread around the room, kind of off to the sides. I'll be out here as well, too. But at any point during this, and Matt, if you want to hop up there with them, too, during this, if you've been being led by God, Maybe he's been speaking to you saying, I know what's in your heart, and I know it's time to to take the next step and to move on. If you're ready to have a conversation about Jesus, we want to have that conversation with you today. Again, we've got guys spread around. You can can meet one of these guys during the song at any point. We're going to follow up the song with communion. But I just want to extend it to you. Today is a great day to have a conversation about Jesus. It's a great day to finally say, I'm tired of carrying this baggage in my heart and in my soul and I'm ready to let go of it and accept that forgiveness and to make him the Lord of my life. Let's pray, Father, to say we're thankful for the cross is an understatement. But God, we're thankful for the cross of Jesus and how the cross turned pain and shame and humiliation into hope. God, in these next few moments, Lord, I ask you would speak to hearts, speak to lives, speak to souls.